What a beautiful song, right? Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor. Ah, we have a responsibility to glorify Him, don't we? And He loves receiving that glory, not because He's some egotistical man, but because He is the Creator of all. And He loves it when we acknowledge Him as that. Uh, I was talking to somebody this morning, and they said, our world is messed up. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It is messed up. But it's not messed up beyond his ability to redeem mankind. Do I believe that there's going to be a day when all men will be brought into relationship with him? No, because I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. But I do believe there are some things that we can learn about who he is in light of our Bigger picture of glory. Let's um, turn with me, if you will, to Mark chapter 11. And I want to talk to you about this morning, about that little Greek phrase at the top. Curios, Jesus Christos. Lord Jesus Christ. The term curios is not curious. It's curios means Lord. And the concept of Lord is one that um, indicates two things. First of all, it indicates a master and it indicates servants. Or it indicates a sovereign and it indicates his subjects. It indicates someone who is in control and something that they control. Last week we talked to you about Zacchaeus or Zacchaeus, and we had Jesus coming from his final trip up in Galilee, and he made his way down on the eastern side of the Jordan and then came back around, crossed the Jordan and came into Jericho. He left Jericho, went to Bethany, Mary and Martha and, and uh, thank you, Lazarus. My brain could only think of Zacchaeus and I'm like, that's not Mary and Martha's brother. Yeah, that's the reason I've got May, my helper. Thank you, Miss May. My wife would have been right there, but for some reason my brain just went blank. So, Jesus went to the sister's house of the, the young man, Lazarus, who he brought back to life. And uh, he made his way back down from there. He actually, for the next week, Jesus spent the night at Mary and Martha's house and went from Bethany down into Jerusalem. It's about an hour and a half walk. And so every morning he would get up and come down into Jerusalem. And every evening he would go back from Jerusalem back into Mary and Martha's house. And there's a reason for that. This is Passover. Everybody and their grandpa were in Jerusalem. Literally. Because it was the one time of year that everybody was required to come sacrifice. So everybody was there. It was a crowded place. And um, it became rather expensive. I know y'all don't know that term. 
That's a hillbilly term. It, it, it relates to expensive, right? But it was very expensive for them to stay in Jerusalem. It was a costly process. And so rather than waste the money, you would go to a neighboring village or sometimes go out into the desert, go out into the wild and just camp. And then you'd make your way back into Jerusalem for the Holy Week where you would participate in all of the sacrifices that were being offered. So Jesus, the last week, Monday morning, he gets up and he comes down into Jerusalem. And as he comes down, he, he tells his disciples on his way, y'all run on ahead. I need for you to do something for me. Jesus didn't normally take care of the details. But some details are too big to leave into the hands of somebody that doesn't know the end result. Right? Some things you just have to orchestrate just right in order to accomplish all the things that you want to accomplish. And so Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, Master Jesus Christ, the one who was the overseer Jesus Christ, the one who was in charge of everything, the one who was sovereign. And you notice the term kurios in Greek has the same meaning as Adonai, Jehovah, Jehovah Adonai in the Hebrew, which was Lord over all. This same Lord said, here's some details I need you to attend to. Go on up ahead to such and so address. And you'll meet somebody. Actually, you'll see this little foal of an ass, a donkey, on the side of the road. It's young. Nobody's ever ridden it. And when you go up to it, take it and unloose it. And the person will ask you, what are you doing? And you say, my master has need of it and will bring it back. And he'll give you permission to take it. So, his disciples ran on ahead of him and, uh, and grabbed the donkey. Some of them did. To bring it back so that he could do this fantastic triumphal entry. Let, let's start reading the passage as, as we start with Mark 1.11 and uh, 1.1-11. We, we read the following. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you and just as you enter it you will find a colt there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are doing this, say, The Lord needs it and it will be sent back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people were standing there and asked, What are you doing untying that colt? And they answered as Jesus had told them to do. And the people let him go. When they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches that they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, 
Hosanna. Save us. That's what it translates to. Hosanna means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Monday consisted of a donkey ride. He rode from the start there of um, where the mountain just before it turns around and goes into Jerusalem. Jesus started riding this donkey probably up the side of the hill, made his way, and then there's a space here at the Mount of Olives where as you turn the corner, all of a sudden before you sits the Jerusalem Valley. And then up on the hill, here's the city of Jerusalem. And it's magnificent. And, and I'm sure that Jesus understood everything that that picture entailed. And the people around him acknowledged him for who he was in one sense of the word. They acknowledged him as Savior of mankind. Now here's the problem. Their understanding of who a Savior was, was this conquering king. Was the one who would take the sword and he would throw off the yoke of bondage that the Romans had put on them. And they would no longer be slaves and they would no longer have to pay taxes to those people like Zacchaeus. They would no longer be responsible to live life according to a heathen's standard, but they could live life according to the Jewish law. The only thing about it, from a conquering king perspective Jesus picked the wrong animal from the conquering king he should have had a horse prancing sideways and he should have had Roman slaves indicating of what he was going to do or had done to the Roman Empire and he should have come in to the sounds of singing for all the wonderful exploits he had done But instead, he chooses an animal that sends a whole different story. Now, we in the United States have kind of got a misinformation on what it means to ride a donkey, right? We think of riding a burro as being something that is very um, negative and hilarious and it's funny. I mean, we think, we think of it in a... In a, in a a very nasty sort of way. Only a hillbilly rides a donkey, right? Hillbillies ride Harleys. Here's the story. The donkey, in those days, when a king or a sovereign or a lord rode in on a donkey, what he was saying to the people is, I do not bring you war, I bring you peace. 
I do not come to lord over you my abilities, even though I may have rights. I come to be your trusted leader. These people knew this. This was not a mistake to them. They knew that the person entering on a donkey in that way would be representing a leader of peace. But it was hard for them to grasp. However, in the very roughest sense of the word, in those moments where Jesus rode that donkey down the Mount of Olives and on across the valley into Jerusalem, something spectacular happened in that the crowd, the people, acknowledged him as Lord. They had a different idea of what Lord was going to be. They had a different idea of what Savior was going to be, but they acknowledged him as Lord. Do you know what he says? One day, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Nobody forced these folks to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Nobody forced these folks to say, save us, Jesus. Nobody forced, for, forced them to acknowledge that he was of the kingdom of David. Nobody forced them to acknowledge that he was from God. Their statements match prophetic activities that had taken place back in Isaiah, back in Zechariah, back in the development of the Old Testament. It, it acknowledged that Jesus was the coming Messiah. They didn't quite get it. But the image was there for them. And they captured the image. Now, one of the things that we want to understand from this is that Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ, proved to the world that He was the Lord of the people. In that moment, specifically of the Jewish people, of His people, He said, I am Lord of you. He never lorded it over them. He never took His iron fist and forced them to do something. He came in a whole different manner. And he said, I desire that you would submit to the authority of God in me. But I will not force you in that relationship. What, what, what marvelous love. What marvelous insight into the personhood of Jesus Christ. He cared us enough to allow us to resist His Lordship. It's not what's best for us, but He cared for us enough. Let's go to the next set, because I want you to understand. After Jesus did what He did, the Word got back to the Jewish officials. They became a little uh, frustrated, a little angry, but they weren't beyond belief angry, right? They weren't to the place yet where they were ready to do something. There had to be another button pushed. He'd been pushing them for a few months now. Matter of fact, he had to leave because they were going to seize him earlier. And remember, he walked up and, and kind of disappeared, and they went to find out where he was, and he's like, where did he go? 
They just disappeared from our midst. Well, that was the moment at which they started the process, and he knew it was going to happen, but it was not yet to come. Well, so Jesus got to the temple. When he got to the temple, everything was done for the day. It was kind of closed up shop. But he looked around, and some things weren't like they were supposed to be. When Jesus was younger, earlier in his ministry, when he had first started the ministry, he went into the temple courts, and guess what they were doing? They were selling stuff. They were taxing folks. To, taxing folks on what they were offering to the Lord. The priests were becoming sort of a, a mini Roman government. To say, yeah, you can worship God, but it's going to cost you. The Jewish mafia. Right? And so all these folks who were coming... They couldn't bring all of their animals to sacrifice. They couldn't bring the other stuff that they needed to participate. And so these folks set up shop out there selling sheep and goats and doves and all that should be sacrificed. And they made really good profit on it. I mean, like several hundred percent. What would normally cost you a couple of pennies would now cost you a quarter of a, a dollar. 15, 20 cents. This is horrible. There was no reason for it. There wasn't a shortage of dove. There wasn't a shortage of sheep. It was just these people needed them. It was required by the, by the law. It was required by the, by the uh, spiritual law of the time. And so they, they just, they gouged them. And as the story goes, Jesus got there, and they had closed those shops down, but he looked around, and guess what he saw? He saw the bazaars, but there wasn't anybody in attendance. He saw the sheep and the, the cages for the doves and the other things that were there. They were still set up like they were going to do business the next morning, and Jesus got there, and he turned around, and he went back to Bethany, but he didn't forget what he saw. So he went back to Bethany, and the next day he gets up, and they start walking. Instead of riding the donkey this time, they start, they start walking. And as they're walking along, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. I don't know why Jesus was hungry. I don't know if he had breakfast earlier that morning. Or if it was like the 1030 blues. You know, he had breakfast, but there was still, he needed a piece of fruit or something. But he was hungry. Seeing in the distance the fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves. Because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now, it's kind, of, it's kind of bizarre that Jesus would expect fruit from a tree whose season it was not yet to produce fruit. But here's what the tree was doing. The tree was showing all the signs that it should have fruit. Its leaves were developed. It was saying, I am one thing and I am 
fully developed, and I am right. And when Jesus went in to see the tree, he began to look, and there was not even a sign that fruit was going to be on the tree. I think there's a couple of things that we can learn from this, apart from the lordship part. And that is, one, that Jesus demands fruit from all of his fruit trees. And if you pretend that you are bearing fruit and you are not bearing fruit, you better be careful because you're lying to the public. You're saying one thing to the community and when the community comes to find Jesus in you, it does not find Jesus. And when trees aren't fruitful, when we as His children are not producing fruit, He could cut us off and destroy us. You know what happened to the tree, right? The next day, uh, I need to go back. Jesus came into town the first day on Sunday on the donkey. On Monday, He came back to do this. On Tuesday, the next day, when they came back in. Going back out, I guess it was. Going back out of the city. They looked at the tree. And from morning till night, it was dead and shriveled up. Now, I got kind of tickled as I looked at some of the commentators talking about how this happened. And, and some of them said, this could not have been. Oh, right. Because you're not dealing with the Lord of creation, right? You're not dealing with the one who created light from its source to its destination at a single instance. Do you realize that is the that is the biggest that is the biggest sticking point for people who do not believe in creation? They cannot figure out how if the earth is only this old, the light could go from its source to its destination. Guess what? Jesus created it. It was already there. Trees that he created did not have to start with a seed. When he created Adam and Eve, he didn't start with little babies. So the one who created all of this could not have possibly, right, spoken to the tree and said, Cursed be you, nobody will ever eat of your fruit again. And then it would have responded. It did respond. And the very life flow that gave that tree life, guess where life came from? Every bit of life came from the Father. And the Son was with the Father from the beginning. So all life originated in Him. When He pulls Himself out of something, it has no life. There must be something in there that has to do with the sermon too. When we lose the life force of Jesus Christ in our lives, of what value are we 
but to be consumed with fire. Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, is Lord of all creation, nature, everything that has been created. He is Lord over it and it exists because He says it exists. And when He says it doesn't exist, it will cease to exist. We'll go into that in just a minute. Let me go to the third thing. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. These are those, those greedy money makers. And you know what? The money changers were not private individuals. Well, there were some of them that were, but they paid the priests for the privilege. How would y'all feel if I'd set up in the foyer or maybe here in the church some little booths where folks were sell, selling their wares and then tell you, guess what? If you come to this church, you got to buy from them and then you got to give that stuff to me. And I would give these people permission to set up their booths here and they would give me a kickback from it, right? And then from the kickback, I got money plus... They had to pay me for permission to even ask for a booth. And if I got angry at them or didn't think they were giving me enough, I'd say, y'all can be gone. We'll get somebody else in here to do business for this. These are the people. The priests were the ones. They were supposed to be the ones who were trusted, entrusted with truth with the worship of the Most High God in their minds, their hearts, their spirits were solely consumed with one thing, and that is to make the money, to have the control. So he began to drive them out who were there buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers, the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. In other words, he ran them out, said, don't come back in here. Nobody is to bring a dove through here or a sheep through here or any other trinket that has been bought from these money makers. Go out and find somebody who will sell you a sheep at the right price. They're done. Back when I was younger, I was naive. I, I, I really didn't think that Jesus could have gotten angry. But you know what? I got a feeling you haven't seen indignant, righteous anger like you would have seen had you been there when Jesus was going through. My house shall be called a house of His heart ached. Because the house became something other than what it was intended to be. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den 
of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began to look for a way to kill him. Now, get this. They were angry that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. They were angry that the people were following him and saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were angry that Jesus was contradicting their teaching. But the one thing they would not stand for is you taking my money. Folks, I don't know why it is, but throughout those last six months of Jesus' ministry on the face of the earth, he addresses the love of money, that concept, more often than I would care to admit before today. And it is the one thing that seems to be the big stumbling block. Folks don't like to get up off of their bucks. Folks don't like to let go of the control of their monetary support or supply and let God take it and use it and administer it His way. They were so angry, they began to look for a way to kill Him. For they feared Him. If he can come in here and manipulate the people in this way, there's no telling what he can do. Because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. As soon as Jesus did this, and I don't think it's found in, in this one, but in the other passages it says, as soon as Jesus ran the money changers out, People who were not permitted in the temple started coming. You know who they were? The lame. The blind. The leprous. They started walking into the temple. And Jesus started making them worthy. By healing them of all their diseases and taking away their sin. See? I'm not the Lord of this church. We may be stewards of what God has given us, but the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of His church. And in spite of the fact there may be people out there selling their wares and making their money and proclaiming their feel good religion. It's not what the master planned. The Lord Jesus Christ has been and always will be the sovereign over the church. And all of us will give an account to our sovereign. Those of us who lead will give a greater account to our sovereign. For if we in any way abuse the authority that he has given us and he has given us authority if we abuse that authority we will be held to a greater measure of justice and I want to tell you something friends I don't want to be in the hands of an angry God I 
have one desire in my life and one desire only, that I may walk in his presence and that I, my walk may glorify him in all that I do. So what I do in this church to try to lead you as your pastor is simply to seek the will of the Father because he is the Lord of the church. There's one more part that's tagged on here at the end of this. It's kind of an unusual part in all of this, but it's a part for us to take away from here. Look at what it says. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree. This is the third time, third day, Tuesday. So Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. So in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots, and Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, or teacher, Look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Y'all ever do that? Y'all ever tell God, when God tells you something, I'm going to do this. And you say, uh-huh. And then later on, God says, look at there. Oh, my goodness. God, did you do that? And we call up our friends and we're like, hey, I know we prayed for a job, but God gave me a job. Uh-huh. I don't know why it amazes us like that, but it does. Somehow we think that, that maybe God isn't listening or, or maybe God's got a different idea or maybe it's just not, I don't know. But Peter saw the fig tree and he looked at it and he said, Look, what you said was going to happen, happen. <laughs> Jesus answered, Have faith in God. Oh my goodness. If I could get that. I'm serious. If I could really grab onto that and hold on to it. Jesus said, if I had the faith the size of a mustard seed. Y'all know how big mustard seeds are? You don't know how big they are? They're about, they're smaller than the head of a pin. You could probably take your hand and cup it and put mustard seeds in it and get about 10,000 in your hand. That's how small they are. Just little grainy dust. And he said, if you got that much faith, you can say to that mountain... You're out of here. And it'll be gone. Man. That's some major stuff. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea, and it does not doubt, and they do not doubt or does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Now, I am not telling you, folks, that all you have to do is name it and claim it. That's not what Jesus is teaching. What he is teaching is, if you need something done in your life, and you have faith to believe it, and pray to the Father that he would take care of it, believe it, and the power is there to transform it. Some of you 
have struggled way too long with stuff that you see as bigger than you are. Some of you have held on to hurts that you should have let, let go of years ago because the weight of those have been heavy on your heart, heavy on your mind. They've been eating at you and destroying you and you feel powerless over them. Jesus said to you, you can claim victory over it in my name and it will be done. If it is, yes, praise the Lord. Give God the praise. This is not about us. This is not about we have the power in ourselves to transform it. But we have one who wants to transform it for us. My little kids would come to me with various and sundry problems. They'd have a toy that somehow they'd been playing with and managed to pop the head off of. Or pull something off of track. Or some screw would come undone. And they would come to me and they'd say, Daddy, I broke it. Can you fix it? What am I going to tell them? Uh-uh. Now I don't want to. You broke it. You live with it. What kind of father would I be, right? Now, there are some things that were beyond my power. But see, my heavenly father does not have a limit on what he can do. What about yours? Does he have limits? See, I think for most of us, one of the major problems we face in our life is our God's not big enough. At least we don't think he is. We live. We live in weakness. We live in pain. We live in despondency. We live in fear. We live in frustration. We live in negativism. And we never truly understand that all we have to do is ask the Father. And he can and will deliver us. Therefore, I tell you, whatever, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it. Understand the wording there, folks. He doesn't say believe that you will receive it. Believe that you have received it. Why can I say that in that way? Because to God, time doesn't exist. God is not limited by our poor concept of time. So when I say, Father, give me this. It is the desire of my heart not that I may be wealthy or that I may have some abundance or plenty or whatever, but that I may glorify you. It's about whether we ask it in his name or in ours. It's about whether we ask it for our good or for his. It's about whether we ask him in this way. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
Jesus had to face the cross. Not because he didn't have faith to believe he could be delivered. But because he desired the will of the Father in his own life. Over and above what he wanted. And when you stand praying. Ooh. And when you stand praying for that stuff that you want, that stuff you say you need, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them. Huh, pastor, you don't know what he's done to me. I don't know how I can forgive him. Well, look at this next statement. If you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Is it worth going to hell in order to hold on to that thing that is eating you up and destroying you inside just so you can say, I didn't forgive him ever? Or I showed her. Yeah. yeah. You're showing it all right. On your way to the pits of eternal torment. Because you can't forgive. You see Jesus. Is not only Lord. Of the people. He's not only Lord of all nature. He's not only Lord of his church. But he is also Lord of our faith. At least he wants to be. I don't have the faith to believe certain things can happen. Part of my problem when I go to the Father is I don't want to ask him for some things. I, I don't know whether it's I don't feel worthy of asking him or not. I don't know if it's because the stuff that I, I'm in the middle of, I know I've gotten myself into. I, I'm not even sure if the stuff that I'm wanting to ask him is in his will. And so sometimes I just don't ask. And as a result, I don't have. We just studied that in James, didn't we? So what am I telling you this morning? What am I saying to you is, is of utmost importance in all that we are doing and all that we are studying and all that we are looking at here about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He is Lord of everything. And He proved it in this final week, three days worth. He showed us over and over again, I am Lord. Now let me be Lord. Of what you can't handle. Let me be Lord. Of all the stuff that's in your life. That is out of control. That's screwed up. That's twisted. That's contorted. That doesn't make sense. Let me be Lord of the stuff that you're afraid to even ask me to take care of. Let me be Lord. Of your heart. And let go of those things that you cannot forgive so that I can forgive you.
Let go of the anger. Let go of the fear. Let go of the challenges to your faith. And let me be Lord of your life. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to bow your heads with me.